Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn to uh, Proverbs chapter 28. You remember last week that we examined uh, three verses that uh, really had a lot of good practical uh, principles for, for all of us. You know, every time I preach the book of Proverbs, really anything, I'm always trying to be conscious of, of, you know, giving you an overall doctrinal, historical, inspirational. But obviously, you know, I want to really focus on the things that uh, are going to be beneficial for us. And doctrinally, we know now that uh, what we looked at last week was to the nation of Israel. And inspirationally, we know that it's aimed uh, right at us. And we made some really good uh, uh, practical applications to it. Three basically great principles for life out of those three verses last week. First of all, verse 6, and I'm going to paraphrase now based on what we learned from it, the truth was that we're better off with the true riches of God and poor as far as the world's concerned than you will be with all the world has to offer and not have God in your life. Great concept, great principle. The second one was in verse 7, where it said that the true riches of God will only come into our lives as we get rid of all the junk of the world that uh, we're trying to carry around. You know, for a Christian, when God saves you, you know, he wants to sanctify you. Sanctify means set you apart. And he does that in a spiritual sense. And then based on that spiritual sanctification or setting apart from the world, we need to then to separate ourselves physically from the world in the sense of putting everything uh, to God the way that it needs to be. And that great <coughs> principle that the true riches of God <coughs> will only come into our lives as we get rid of all the junk. And of course, <coughs> there'll be no sanctification in our lives without separation of our lives. And we have to put the world out. Jesus said, and we looked at this last week in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, with the story of a little rich young ruler. Uh, Jesus said, uh, told him, pick up my cross and follow me. But he couldn't. And when Jesus told him the bottom line that he, he had to sell everything and give it to the poor uh, and then pick up his cross and follow him, the Bible says he went away sorrowful. He was good with everything up to write the things that were the most important things in our life. You know, and that is such a great principle. All of us are willing to give up a lot of things in our life. We're just not willing to give up that one or two things that we really need to give up. And what a great principle that was. And uh, we can't do it. We can't pick up and bear the cross of Christ because we're carrying around the junk of the world. You know, years and years and years ago, when I was at a camp back in Ohio and I was... uh, you know, I was, I was, uh, actually, I was uh, uh, preaching there. And, um, you know, uh, one of the nights, uh, a young gal, just a sweetheart girl, she was just a, about 18 or 19 years old. And it was a senior high camp, and she was giving her testimony. And it was a very, very, very strong, good testimony. It was very obvious that this girl really loved the Lord. And she gave an incredible testimony. And I remember I was standing around afterwards, and you know how all the young girls, you know, they want to gravitate to somebody like that, you know, and one of the girls come up and they were all talking to her, you know, and enjoying it. And one of the girls said, um, you know, you know what? I would just give the world to have a testimony like you have tonight. And she looked at her and she says, you know what? That's exactly what it cost me, the world. And it's, it's so true. You know, there'll be no sanctification without separation. And then the third thing in verse 8, as a child of God, we need to give uh, to people, not take from them or use them for our own profit. 
you know, and, and we talked about that. And, you know, from, from my standpoint, as, as your pastor, I should have one goal for you, uh, one motive for all that I do with you, you know, one agenda for you, and that is to make you better. Uh, that, and that's a key word, better, to make you better than you are. Every time you come to a Thursday night Bible study, you know, my job ought to be to give you the Word of God that when you leave, you're better than when you came. Now, I know a lot of that depends on what you do with it, but on my part of it is to be to make sure I'm exact in everything that I do. And, you know, when you come on Sunday morning, I have one goal. When you leave here this morning, uh, I don't necessarily want you going feeling good, but I want you going feeling better about yourself. And that can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. You know, through our times in the Bible together and our personal relationship, <clears throat> making your personal life better, making your marriage better, making your family better, uh, all by making your relationship with God better. And that only comes from the Word of God. And you should have the same goal for the people uh, that God puts in your life. And I know many of you are working with people. Many of you are helping people on different levels, different stages from discipleship to counseling them through their issues and all those things. Uh, but at the end of the day, we need to do for them what the Word of God and the Bible does for us, and that is to try to make them better. And so many of you do. You really do. I mean, it's quite incredible. Now, this week, we're again, yes, we're going to look at a few more verses and learn and hopefully apply uh, what we can uh, from all of this. So let me begin by reading here uh, Proverbs chapter 28, and believe it or not, we're going to get through, uh, we're going to get through uh, three verses today, so uh, we'll be looking forward to that. So uh, let's read them. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. Whoso causeth the righteous to go astray in an evil way, he shall fall himself into his own pit. But the upright shall have good things in possession. The rich man is wise in his own conceit, but the poor that hath understanding searcheth, searcheth him out. Nick, would you stand up and ask God blessing on the <coughs> service for us this morning? <clears throat> Thank you, buddy. Now, let's look at verse 9 and begin here. And, and, and let me say, uh, there will be some hard things said today. And uh, I don't mean it because I'm mad about anything. I don't mean it because I have a personal agenda um, to... Uh, but, you know, truth sometimes can be brutal. And we know, that's why we don't like the truth. In our Christian world, m many God's people like to live in a bubble, they like to live in a world that doesn't exist. You know, they try to get along with everybody. You'll have a conflict here with God's people, and they'll, they'll just can't see which side is really biblical and which side isn't. They just try to live in a gray, mush world of Christianity that doesn't really deal with any hard facts or truth, certainly not any doctrine. And so I understand that. And believe it or not, as, as, as callous as you think I am, and I am, as hard-nosed as I can be sometimes, I feel for people who, 
who don't get it. I really do. And, but truth today is so foreign to God's people. Amen. God's people have been hoodwinked for so many years Amen. that they actually believe this gray mush, this ecumenical junk that goes on where everybody just gets along and we agree to disagree and it's just, just not real Bible. And the problem is, is like I've laid out many times in the book of Hosea chapter 8 verse 12, the day and age that we live in, the Bible says that the great things of God have now become strange things to us. And so we're going to basically, if somebody would say, what are you really going to do today? We're just going to walk down the old path of Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 6. The Bible says that that was the good way that we're to look for and the right way. And I want to tell you right now, you're going to hear some strange things today because real Bible truth, real Bible teaching is totally adverse to the 99.9% of God's people today. They just can't get there. And they're not bad people. They're really not. I'm not standing up here saying they're a bunch of idiots. Now, I'll use the word idiot a lot today because I like that word. But I, I, I don't think, I think there, many of them are good people. The problem I have with them is they don't want to grow past a point. They've come so far in their Christian life and they're not going to go any farther. Most of them don't like conflict. Most of them don't like confrontation. Most of them don't, would never take a stand that's any kind of meaning for anything. They're, they're the kumbaya Christians. And you know what? You can't survive doing anything for God being that kind of Christian. You have to be able to take your stand. And unfortunately, in the world that we live in today, most of God's people will never take a stand for anything that means anything. In their mind, they think they will. Oh, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I'm taking my stand. You're not taking any kind of stand till you get your nose in the fight. But that's where we're at today. And verse 9 says, He that turneth away... Listen to me now, because this is going to get rough today. He that turneth his ear, turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, that is a wrecking ball verse. Uh, This will completely, totally dismantle 99% of God's people, churches, pastors today in what they teach you on prayer. Because this verse is clearly talking about our prayer life. Now, in the day and age that we live in, prayer is an explosive subject. Anyhow, it's dynamite. Yet, without a doubt, obviously, the key to any real relationship we have with God will be our prayer life. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that. Your relationship with God will only be as strong as your prayer life. Along with that, your relationship with God will only be as strong as the Bible you have. So, you know what the devil did? He attacked both. And once he took the Bible away, and we'll see that in a moment, once he took the Bible away, now we have a whole bunch of God's people that uh, have no clue, have no clue about what real biblical prayer is. And all day long in their life, in churches and pulpits this morning, I know, this is rough. I don't, I'm not happy to preach this. In fact, I may change this any time now and just preach on the love of Jesus. But I'm telling you, they're standing in pulpits, and all week long, they're praying their prayer to God, and God, it ain't getting out of the room, and they don't even know it. 
Because Romans chapter 8, verse 26 tells us that in the Bible, God tells us that we have three basic infirmities as a Christian. Three. Now, the word infirmity is a good firm word because it means a weakness. It means an unsound state. And when it comes to God's people, all of us, you and me, the Bible makes it clear, and I know this is not popular today, but the Bible makes it clear that we have three infirmities throughout the Word of God. The first one is found in Romans chapter 6, verse 19, and that is our flesh. And if you ain't figured out yet that you got a problem with your flesh, you're in, you're on, I'm not sure what planet you live on. That is a definite infirmity. And I'll tell you the second one in Psalms chapter 77, verse 10. He tells you that that great verse, the second infirmity we have is that we forget the things that God has done for us. And I'm telling you, if that isn't a dying truth, I don't know what is. Nation of Israel did the same thing. They no more got across the Red Sea and God split it and they walked across on dry ground and the great miracles that God did that they just kept forgetting what he would do for them. And God's people today just forget what God has done. Now, I understand why a lot of that is because in most cases, God ain't doing nothing. I get it. So we got to trump up things to make it look like God's really doing something in our world. But I'm telling you right now, I'm telling you, Romans chapter 8, verse 26 is the third one, and it clearly says we don't know how to pray. Now, please don't tell me that you're the exception to the rule and you do know how to pray. It says, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself, and there is the Holy Spirit of God is, like, is called an itself instead of a person. You should know why. I'm not going to tell you why. That would probably be a good indicator. You don't know what you're talking about with prayer when you can't even understand the words that he uses. Itself maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, as I said, prayer today is a minefield. It's one of those hotbeds in Christianity that the spiritual Pharisees who like to pretend they're great prayer warriors love to exist. Now, I've been in this business longer than a couple of weeks, almost 50 years, and I have seen every aspect of this. They are men and women who like to pretend that they're spiritual, Christians who if you don't pray the way they think you ought to pray or do it the way that they say you need to do it, that you're not really spiritual. They are the experts on prayer. And, you know, it's a case where uh, you, they come in different flavors like ice cream. You have the, you have the positional prayer warriors that your prayer to God has to be in a certain position. Kneel, close your eyes, bow your head, close your hands, and that's the real way that you pray. Some would tell you to get into a prayer closet. In most of your houses, if you're married, that can never happen with all of the clothes, the shoes, and the handbags that your wife has in the closet. So that won't work. But you have the people who are positional, and, uh, you know, uh, they, they, they say that you've got to, you've got to, you've got to, you know, yet the Bible says pray without ceasing. You know, you can pray and have some great conversations with God while you're driving to work in the morning. Do you understand that? But I would also suggest that you don't take the positional prayer warrior position. 
Then you have the Christians, and they're the pray-about-everything Christians. I've known men and women who say, well, I mean, they, they'll get up there and they'll talk about, well, I want you to know that I pray about everything. Yeah, you know, and if you're talking to a younger congregation or a bunch of younger Christians, I got to honestly tell you, that sounds pretty impressive to pray about everything. And, uh, you know, somebody get up and you say, well, I, you know, in my life, I, I just got to tell you, I just, <clears throat> I just pray about everything. Now, to you, that sounds impressive. To me, all that shows me is how stupid they really are. Because if you know your Bible, you know there's things that you don't have to pray about. If that Bible tells you that when you get saved, you're to get baptized, you don't have to pray about that. But you see, you got these guys and they do that because they want you to think they're spiritual. I mean, a young Christian says, oh, boy, oh, my pastor, he, he, he prays about everything. What do you think of that? I said, I think he doesn't know very much about the Bible. That's what I think. Because you want to know that there's some things in the Bible you don't have to pray for. There'll be things that God will put in your life that are very clearly defined. Why do you have to pray about something that God clearly told you is already what you're supposed to do in the Word of God other than you don't know where the Bible says you're supposed to do? That's not spirituality. Then we have the time prayer warriors. They have a specific time that they get a hold of God. In most Baptist churches, they, uh, they ha- we don't have them here. And I, again, I'm not against corporate prayer. I'm really not. I- I'm really not. If there ever came a need in our time in our church and we had to pull everybody together, I- I'm all for that. But it's like sometimes pastors just don't know what to do with their people, so they see this guy do it or they read this or they're taught this, so they, they think, well, how are we going to be make the? I know what we'll do. Let's have a 6 o'clock prayer meeting at church for the men. And that sounds spiritual. Get up early. Seek ye the Lord early. Of course, there's no time in heaven, so it ain't early for him. You know, I, and, and I, I don't mean to be callous to this, but this is where pray without ceasing really comes in handy. Just wake up, say a prayer, roll over, and go back to sleep at 635. I am not, after you guys work all week long, and you work with people all week long, and you do all that you do, and you've got one day off on Saturday, I'm going to bring you in so we can all pretend God only listens to you at 6.30 in the morning? Years ago, we had a guy in the church, not this one, and he was kind of a Pharisee, just like all these guys are. And he was a Pharisee. And he, wanted, he came to the pastors, and he, he wanted to have a meeting with the pastors. And we said, okay, well, you know, I don't know. And he, what he wanted was this. He wanted to know if he could have a key to the church. So he could come in every morning at 5.30 and pray for the church. Now, that sounds really spiritual. I got to tell you, I, I, I almost wanted a key. <laughs> that sounds really spiritual. But you know how pious that is? You realize that, that God, you, you, you have no more power at God at 5.30 in the morning praying in the church that you will, you know, any place else on this planet, driving down the road. But this is the mindset we get in. They're like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' time. They love to be seen of men to pray. They love the uppermost 
seats of the synagogue. They loved people looking at them and saying, I'm a prayer. Did you ever notice? I'll tell you another one. You got the change in voice prayer warriors. I've seen them. I've seen them out there in a softball field, a basketball court. Come on, get that ball in there. Come on. Get, hey, what do you mean? I'm, he was safe. Bob, would you pray this morning? Oh, dear heavenly Lord, Father, we thank you for this wonderful morning. And we pray, Father, that through this great endeavor of today of sharing God's word, that you would take us ugly ducklings and make us into swans. Now, you think God's impressed with that? You know, a study of the best prayer warriors you ever found was a guy by the name of Moses. Moses knew how to get a hold of God and pray. Of course, the Bible says that he spoke to God face to face like a man speaking to his friend. Most of God's people will never get there today. But when Moses got down with God, it was down and dirty. It was right where it needed to be. And God responded to that. I mean, I've told you before, there's times that, that uh, uh, you know, Moses comes in the tent and God says, what's going on with you? And he's just ripping up a storm, man, mad at the nation of Israel, asking God to wipe them out and kill them. And God says, now, Moses, you, know, you need to take back, take a couple deep breaths, slow down a little bit. You know, we can't do that. We got to, something we got to do. And, he just, and finally, he just lets him rant and get it out. And Moses says, you're right, Lord, I'm okay. And then about two weeks later, Moses comes in the tent and God's ranting and raving. And he says, I'm going to kill him out. I'm going to wipe him out. I'm going to open up the earth and swallow them all up. Now, Moses says to God, imagine this. Moses says to God, come on, Lord, you know better than that. What are all these other nations going to say if you kill all these people after all the things you said you were going to do with them? And God says, yeah, Moses, you're right. You ever have a conversation with God? Of course you haven't. Of course you have it. You know why? Because real spirituality and a real relationship with God is as a man speaketh to his friend face to face. Not this pious gas bag stuff that we pretend is really, is really prayer. And in many cases, I'm telling you, prayer will be a cloak. It'll be a cloak for somebody to hide behind who has no real relationship with God in anything in the Bible. And I'm going to show you that before we're done this morning. I told you, it's going to be a rough day. It would have been a good day to call in sick. And I'll tell you something else. In half the cases of these great spiritual Pharisees, over my years, every one of them had a deep, serious sin problem that they used prayer to mask to everybody else of what they were struggling with with their own life. It's quite incredible. A couple of weeks ago on a Thursday night, somebody asked a question, you know, about the seven things you lose when you lose your Bible. And I walked you through that. Each one of them is a profound, powerful message in itself. But I showed you in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, that when you lose your Bible, you have no power in preaching. That's why all these guys teach today. That's why you couldn't, guy find most pastors couldn't preach their way out of a wet paper bag. They're powerless. They get up and they, 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 they couldn't preach if their life depended on it. Because the, the whole thing has shifted. Now, and, and some of you people, some of God's people like that. You know why you like that? Because you lost the power of preaching too. Why you don't find, you find that the Old Testament prophets, they weren't teachers, they were preachers. Paul was a preacher. Peter was a preacher. Now, I know there's times to teach, and you should, because teaching edifies. But you know, you don't have a time in your life where you need to have your hide taken off. Do you understand that? Amen. You really need to come to a time when somebody just dresses you down and puts it right between your eyeballs. 
And the second thing he says in John chapter 14, verse 23, you lose your love for God when you lose your Bible. And yet, how people would argue with that. Oh, I love God. I love God. No, you love what you think is God. Because the Bible says that in Christianity today, we deal with God like we do with everything else. We love things. We love shoes. We love dresses. We love cars. We love boats. We love vacations. We love everything that can never love us back. And I'm telling you, I'm just telling you, American Christians get into relationship with God like they get in relationship with their husbands and wives. That's why their relationship and marriage don't last either. They fall in love with somebody. Through the moment of time, the passion, they fall in love with somebody, and then as time passes on, they fall out of love with that person. And that's exactly what God's people do with God. You go to a Sunday night service, you go to a Sunday morning service, you go to revival, some guy preaches his heart out and you get emotionally stirred and you think, you get saved, oh no, I love God. And that night you fell in love with God, but three weeks later, a month later, when you get a better deal, you'll fall out of love with him. You see, you don't fall in love with God, you learn to love God. And there's only one way to do that, through the word of God. You don't have the book down? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I'll tell you the third one, Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, no inheritance, millennial rewards, all gone. The fourth one, John chapter 4, verse 24, no worship. So you go to churches that say, we're going to have a worship service. (laughs) We're going to worship God with our tithes and our offering. That's not worship. The Bible says, I keep hating to bring it up, the Bible says worship has to be between you and God, John chapter 4, your spirit and his truth. No worship outside of that. I don't care what your rinky-dinky pastor tells you. I don't care what games they play with the smoke and the lights and the rock band and the drummer and all those things up there. We're worshiping God. You're out of the pit of hell when it comes to the Bible. But don't let me disrupt that. You enjoy it. Only going to get worse. The fifth thing is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. No working of God in you. John chapter 16, the greatest chapter in the Bible in the Holy Spirit of God. It tells you the seven things that the Holy Spirit of God does for you. And you're going to sit here this morning and tell me the Holy Spirit of God's working with you and working through you and using you, and you can't even take me to the definitive chapter and lay out those seven for Are you kidding me? Reality's tough, isn't it? You know, I, I, I found a long time ago to get the most Christians, I don't need a sledgehammer. I don't need a jackhammer. I just need a little pin. And I just go around busting the bubbles that you live in. Because we live in our own bubbles. We get this idea, boy, God is really using me. And you couldn't even tell me the seven things the Holy Spirit of God does in your life, and you want me to believe that? <laughs> Sixth thing, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and verse 17. You mark this, and we're going to come back to it. No furnishings. Now, the seventh one, with John 15, 7, and that is the fact that when you lose the Word of God, you lose your prayer life. He says, if you abide in me and my Word abide in you, you shall ask whatever you ask, and it shall be done unto you. And, of course, that's in the light of Romans chapter 8, God's will. 
And you know, it's a thing where we've come to the point where we've completely lost these things. Now, this is why Christianity and Christians are powerless today. This is why you, we sit around and talk about how much we love God and how much of this and how much of that, and we go to church, all these things and all that stuff, and you maybe even have the right Bible, but you know what? You have never won a person to Christ in your life. Got Taylor back here. He's getting saved through the first of the year. He's already got one scored up with his dad and probably going to mark up some more in only the beginning of his life. I got some of you here that <clears throat> when you got saved, you, you won your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your friends or your, uh, to the Lord. <clears throat> What's the difference? How does a person live their whole Christian life, 20, 30 years, talk and say all the right things? Never bear any fruit. I'm telling you. I'm just telling you. Now note, our verse clearly says, and I want you to see this. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. This guy had the word of God, turned his ear from it. Now, without a doubt, one of the major areas that we as God's people have lost completely is the aspect of prayer. And that's why we are such powerless people. Now, we already know, or you should know, that for an unsaved man, God will not hear his prayer. John chapter 9, verse 31 tells us that now we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Bible is very clear without getting to all the ramifications of this. Uh, and this will be a great Thursday night Bible Sunday question if somebody wants to develop it a little bit. But it's very clear that an unsaved man is in the wrong family, John chapter 8, verse 44. So God doesn't hear his prayer. Or maybe he hears it, but he doesn't acknowledge it or he doesn't deal with it. And we are taught, I must say, we are taught that God will always hear the prayers of his people. Uh, We are taught in the pulpit and pastors every day Now, you get up there and you talk about prayer, and he talks about prayer, or you have prayer meetings, you have prayer conferences, and you're told that, uh, you know, that God God will always hear the prayers of his people. I mean, here again, that comes in different categories. I mean, you have, uh, and you're going to find out that now we know from this verse that that's cold, hard facts, that that's not just true. Now, I know what we could all do. I know what we'll do. How many exacto cutters do we have here? Let's just cut that verse out. I mean, what do you do with that verse? I know. Let's preach it. Because the verse says, He that turneth his way from the hearing of the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. So now we know we have been lied to. And you find the fallacy of fasting. Oh, I got something in my heart that I want God to do. I have something in my life that God wants to change. So I'm going to go pray and fast. And we think that because we go for a week, we go for a month, we go for a day, two days, and we don't eat something, that God looks over to the banishers of heaven and says, Oh, my they're getting so weak. He's so hungry. I mean, he drove, he drove through McDonald's parking lot, Gabriel, four times and was going to get a Big Mac and did not. 
because he wants me to change something. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to reward him. <laughs> Fix your problem. That's the way God's people. You see, you think that when you don't get what you want your way, that fasting is the way for God to change his mind. How stupid are you? You couldn't even give me the two definitive patches in the Bible on fasting that tells you what it is. Oh, no, 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 no. You've been lied to. And some of you like the lie. I'll tell you something else. We've been told that prayer changes things. Not necessarily so. If you understood God and how God works, you would see the fallacy of that kind of thinking. Prayer doesn't always change things. There's some things that God doesn't want to change. And if you would get him to change, I remember one time Peter tried to get him not to go to the cross. How would that have worked out for us? Then we got the name it, claim it crowd. Mostly those are the charismaniacs, and they're the evangelical guys who slide that way, but they always stay to say, whatever you want, you claim it, you name it, God's going to give it to you. Then we have those that just simply use prayer as an order catalog. God, give me this. God, do this. God, I don't know why you did it this way, but uh, you know that's not the right way, so what I'm praying now, so you'll do it the right way. Are you kidding me? (laughs) And you can see that verse 9, just so we keep it all straight here, you can see that verse 9 is not talking about unbelievers. Because if it was talking about unbelievers, it wouldn't make a difference whether they were listening to the Word of God or not. Uh-uh, uh-uh. No, this is a man or a woman or a believer who has clearly has rejected God's Word and he loses his ability to pray along with the other seven things that he can lose or six things. And now the Bible says, the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, the Bible, the one you were all supposed to believe, his prayer now coming to God is an abomination. Wow. Lay that on your neo-evangelical clown pastor or your charismatic idiot or your Baptist apostate. Lay that truth on them. No, this is about God's people. Historically, it's the nation of Israel who had the Word of God and rejected it and lost everything with God. And the New Testament, it's you and me who had the true, perfect Word of God. We reject it. I told you it's going to be rough today. Truth will be brutal sometimes. I mean, nobody likes to be woken up out of, a, out of a deep sleep. Now, let's see how the Bible lays all this out. And again, I keep apologizing for going back to the Bible. My internet was down all week, and I couldn't get a sermon out of there, so I had to go back to the Bible. Now, back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus in particular, there was a great illustration of our prayer life our life, our ministry, and really our relationship with God. And as I said, there's nothing like a Bible to clean up Baptist or neo-evangelical heresy. And it'll be a study of the tabernacle. The tabernacle, without a doubt, is probably the greatest single study that you'll take in the whole Bible that will lead you to so many other studies. And it's an incredible study. And the tabernacle was the central part of worship for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. 
And yet the Bible says the illustration for the New Testament is that it's a picture of your body and my body. What? Know ye not your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, and which you have a God? Second Corinthians chapter 5 says that we have a, if this earthly tabernacle is dissolved. In a practical way, your body as a Christian is that tabernacle. And you want to understand what your life should be, really? Do you really want to get a down-to-earth biblical format of what you really ought to be? It's going to take you probably changing some things in your life, but maybe you won't do. But what a great study. First off, as you come down through that, you'll find that it was an outer court with an inner court. And within that inner court, it had seven pieces of furniture. Now, I told you to mark back here when we got in here uh, back in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6 and 17, that when you lose the Word of God, you have no furnishings. Okay, now I'm going to show you from an Old Testament picture what these furnishings are that you're to put in your life. Jesus Christ lives inside you. You're his apartment, condominium, house, temple, building, made without hands. If I would come over to your house and you'd say, hey, Bob, why don't you come over and spend the weekend? We'd love to have you. And I'd say, oh, man, that's great. I'd love to. Yeah, we'd have some good times. Yeah. And, uh, so I get to your house and, and uh, you, you say, hey, we got your room all ready for you. And, and I, you take me into the garage. And you're getting the room ready for me was you moved the car out, and here's an empty cement wall, cement bottom, with nothing in it. No chairs, no tables, no TV, no nothing. And as you say, just be comfortable and relax and walk in. You turn the light out, now it's complete darkness. <laughs> How comfortable would I be in that scenario? Well, you know what? You asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart. He took up residency inside your temple and you know what you've done? You've provided no furnishing for him, and you've got him living in a cold floor cement garage with nothing there to comfort him. But oh, look how you're comforting yourself. Kumbaya, Lord, kumbaya. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Feel it now, folks. Hallelujah. What's it to ya? <laughs> so what you have here is, the first thing you have is the brazen altar. The brazen altar was outside the tabernacle, and it was a brazen grate made out of brass that burned, and that's where the sacrifice was burned. In your life and my life, that'll represent the cross of Calvary. That's where our sacrifice was paid for and burned on the brazen altar. And when they brought the offerings to the nation of Israel, the high priest or the priest, they burned that offering, that innocent offering on that brazen altar. And for time and eternity, that is a picture of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you and for me. Now, the second thing, if you would walk into that inner court there, you would find over here to your right, you would find the table of shoe bread. That shoe bread is made out on a table and it's 12 round loaves or 12 loaves, however you want to do it. And it's, uh, it's laid out on the table in 12. One, two, three, four, five, six. Underneath of it, one, two, three, four, five, six. Now, that's a picture of the Word of God. It's called shoe bread. Shoe, Old English for show bread. 
In other words, they were to show this bread to everybody else. And when God gave you the word of God, you're to show that to everybody else. And yet I want you to know that there's 12 because the nation of Israel is 12 tribes. But I also want you to know they're laid out 6-6 because when the Bible got completed, in your shoe bread, you're holding your lap, you've got 66 books. And it's on the table of fellowship. Right across from that was the seven-prong candlestick. And uh, it was over there, and uh, it was, uh, that represents the Holy Spirit of God. In Isaiah chapter 11, in the Old Testament, it tells you that the Holy Spirit of God manifested himself in seven different spirits. But in the New Testament, it's one spirit, but ah, here it comes again. John chapter 16, the great definitive chapter, tells you that the Holy Spirit of God will work in your life through seven aspects. Then you had the laver of water that was back outside, right next too far from the brazen altar. You see, when the priest went into that tabernacle, that's where he did the work. And it's a picture of the ministry and the furnishings that you and I put in our lives that we do the work of God with. Of course, we're not all through with them yet. But every time, you'll notice that when you study the tabernacle, <coughs> there was no floor in it. It was dirt. So when the priest went in and came out, his feet would get dirty. <coughs> and every time he goes back in to minister for the Lord, he has to go over to that labor of water and he washes his feet before he goes back in. And that tells me that every time you're going to do something for God, you better wash your feet with the water of the Word and get clean before you try to do it. Incredible stuff. Incredible stuff. Just incredible. Then you have the Holy of Holies. That was separated by a veil. That's where the mercy seat was, and that's where God dwelt in the Old Testament. There's only one man that could go behind that veil, and that was the high priest. And that was where God lived in the Old Testament, and that was the center and the seat of of the relationship of the nation of Israel with God. And my, my, what a study that is. Inspirationally, it's simply this. Out of all the hundreds of priests, one guy got to go behind that veil. That veil represents the depth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that if you ever got your life where it really needed to be, and you got your head out of wherever it's at, and you got back in that book, and you started taking the book and the principles and applying them to your life, and doing what's right in your life, and doing what's right instead of running around all the world and pretending you're doing something right, let me tell you something. You would sometime in your life go behind that veil, and brother, that's where the fellowship with God really is. That's where John is today. That's where John went. He's laying there in a hospital bed and I'm sitting over there and it was the greatest privilege of my life to hold his hand and you heard me humming. I wasn't humming to you. I was singing to him. And I got to hold his hand right up to the point where the medicine kicked in and he lost consciousness never to get out. But before he did that, when you were asking him, he said, I just want to go home. He'd be behind the veil, man. It isn't how a man lives, it's how a man dies. Because life can be whatever we want to make it to be. Death is only one thing. It's how we die. And of course, he went behind the veil. 
And most of God's people never get behind that veil ever in their life. They do a lot of fun things. They do a lot of things for the Lord. I'm not saying they're not good people. I'm saying it takes a special kind of person with a special kind of love for that book and a relationship with God to go into the Holy of Holies before the rapture takes place. And then six and seven, you have the altar of incense and what is called the golden laver. Now, these are the furnishings that are in that tabernacle, and each one of them represents the furnishings that you and I should put in our life and our relationship with God if we're really going to have a relationship with Him or we're just pretending with everybody that we do. And those things will represent your prayer life. Now, the candlestick, type of the Holy Spirit of God, was never to go out. Exodus chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, I believe. And, you know, the tabernacle was completely over, over covered with skins, goat skin, badger skins, uh, red skins, I don't know, all kinds of animal skin. And there was no light inside it from the outside world. Now, hang on to this. This is going to come your way here. I said that represents your body, your temple, and it was covered by skin, your flesh. And yet inside that tabernacle that belonged to God, there was no outside light from the world. Are we understanding it yet? And yet when somebody walked into that to do the work of God, the only light that was there was the light from the seven golden candlesticks. In other words, when you do the work of God in your life and your ministry for him, the only light that needs to be there is a light from the Holy Spirit of God. And I'll tell you something else. They were out there in the bright sunlight of the desert, bright, hot, 110 degrees. They walked into that tent. You ever go into a movie theater and come to the outside and for a moment you better not move because you're going to trip over three fat ladies sitting in front of you? You just stand there for a while and let your eyes get adjusted to the light. Well, when they walked into that tabernacle, the priest had to stay there for a few minutes. His eyes had to adjust to coming from the light of the world. Are you with me now? To the light of the Holy Spirit of God. And when you first get saved, this is why we disciple you. This is why we work with you. This is why we put people with you. You know why? Because we've got to give you time to get your eyes adjusted from the light of the world to the light of the Holy Spirit of God. Whew. Now, the candlestick was never to go out, and the incense was to burn continually. The only time in your Bible that it did go out, and we don't have time to get into that this morning, was in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And there's a reason for that, but we don't have time. It would fit in really nice here, but we don't have time. The one is a picture, the candlesticks, of the working of the Holy Spirit of God that never ceases. And the second one, the, the altar of incense and the golden labor, is a picture of our prayer life that 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. All this other junk, just worthless. You're getting real biblical prayer today. You're not getting some canned 
guy's stuff that he doesn't know what he's talking about that you want to believe because it doesn't require you really to change anything. You can stay your nice little full of jello and never have to solidify into a rock. Now, when you fail, when you lose the book, verse 9 says, your prayer becomes abomination, Christian. And the only way around that is called exacto cutter. In the Old Testament tabernacle, picture of your body, your tabernacle, if the fire for the incense came from any other source than the brazen altar, God called it strange fire, and it was an abomination to God. In Numbers chapter 3, verse 4, you remember Aaron's boys who God killed, and he killed them because they came before the Lord in the tabernacle and offered strange fire. What does that mean? It means instead of getting the fire for the candlestick and the incense off the brazen altar that represents, they used a little flick bick. God killed them. Are you ready for this? Maybe everybody ought to stand up and do what we used to do. Stand up. Check your equipment. One okay. Two okay. Three okay. Four okay. Nah. Here it comes. When we pray so stupidly, when we pray so selfishly, when we pray so piously, without an understanding of his word or without his word. If that prayer didn't originate in the attitude of your heart at the brazen altar where Christ paid the sacrifice for you, and that is not the motivation behind everything in your life and everything you do, and if it is, Just so we clear it up here, you'll do it by the book. It won't be, yeah, I do, but I just do it my way. No, no, no. It'll be by the book, the furnishings. Then the strange fire in your prayer, because you lost the law, you turned from it. You still have your Bible. You just don't follow it. You're like the guy over there in Luke 7, uh, I think it's Luke 7 or maybe it's Mark 7, where he says, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? And now our own prayer as a child of God, oh, what strange heresy is this? Now our, 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 our own prayer life as a Christian becomes strange fire. Strange fire from a strange book. And our prayer must start at what, where Christ died for us, for it has to have the right acceptance. Listen, the motive behind everything that we do, the motive behind every situation that you find yourself in, every person you deal with, every circumstance you're confronted with, every issue of life in your own personal life or the people or your family, if your decision and your prayer doesn't go back to what he did for you on the cross of Calvary and you operate in that mode, you're wasting your time. Strange fire. That's what's wrong today. And trust me, I know how hard it is to get this. I do. 
I mean, you're not you're not talking to somebody who who just I understand. I'm I'm not indifferent to it. I totally get it. I've been on both sides of the fence. I totally get it and understand how hard truth is to accept sometimes when you're so lackadaisical and so mushmouth and such a marshmallow in your life and your Christianity. You don't want to take a stand for anything. You don't want to, there's no right and wrong in your life as a Christian. It's just, it's just all get along. And trust me, it won't work that way. We get it all the time. I get emails from them and call phone calls from them from some of the neo-evangelical and Baptist clowns who actually run some of the biggest three-ring circuses in the country. And they will take issue with me. How that I say that all the new Bibles are of satanic origin. And you know, my answer to that, and I, this is the way I handle them on the phone. I don't email anybody, so if you want to tell me something, call me. If, unless the email is yes or no, I'm not in it. But I'll, I'll text them back, send me your phone number, I'll call them. And my, my, my statement to them will be certainly this. I mean, come on, how stupid are you? One guy said, well, I have you know I'm a Ph.D. I said, well, I have you know you need to get your money back. <laughs> Come on. Here, walk with me here. Everybody hold hands with the person next to you. No, I'm serious. Grab hands next to you. Come on. You wanted to hold her hand anyhow, pal, so now's your chance. I'm giving it to you. <laughs> I mean, come on. The idea that Satan would counterfeit every aspect of Jesus Christ and forget to counterfeit his Bible? Really? Seriously? I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 says, he, they, this devil's got preachers, he's got ministers, he's got churches, he's got music. Do you really think that the devil is going to damn the world and all these churches by using the truth of God's word? Do you really? When you were clearly told that the devil has a seed in Genesis 3.15 and Christ has a seed and in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23 you're told that that seed is the word of God and that's what saved you? Uncorruptible seed versus the devil's corruptible seed? I wonder where that seed is. I mean, come on. Are you so deaf when it comes to the Bible? Are you so inapt when it comes to the Bible? Have you run your whole life on the surface feeling good stuff about the Bible that you never stopped and considered that the greatest enemy on this planet to Christianity that has always been in the last 6,000 years of history has been the devil himself and he has counterfeited everything that God did except the Bible. And you missed the fact, didn't you, pal, that in the Bible, God put three warnings in your Bible, one in the front, one in the middle, and one in the ending. Deuteronomy 4, 2, Proverbs 30, 15, and Revelation 22, 18, about messing with that book so you couldn't miss it if you ever decided to read your Bible. Just hard for these little boys to try to play big-time toys and grasp it all. I mean, come on, how stupid are you? Well, now, little man, you got another rant to add to your rampage. Not only do you stand in the pulpit every week and denounce God's word and proclaim it and proclaim the devil's Bible, now because you reject and abandon God's law, your prayer is an abomination to God, verse 9. Boy, you can have some fun with that. 
And you know what? The next verse, pal, is just for you. Verse 10. Whoso causes the righteous to go astray in an evil way, he himself shall fall into the same pit. That would be standing in your pulpit on Sunday morning and dumping the Word of God. That would be standing in your pulpit on Sunday morning, preaching out of an RSV, an English Standard Version, an NIV, an ASV, a New King James Bible, the Common English Bible, or whatever other piece of garbage out of the pit of hell you want to hold up as God's Word. It would mean you stand in your pulpit and you would tell your people, now the Bible is just a translation. It would mean that you stand in your pulpit every Sunday morning and you say, now the original manuscripts is the only real truth of where the truth is. And you've got to know Greek and Hebrew to do that. So I'll tell you what the Bible says. You stand in your pulpit every Sunday now in, the, uh, in, 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 in John chapter 6. Now, in the Greek, this word means this. Yeah, you stand in your pulpit every Sunday and you talk about how the King James Bible is full of archaic words. How the King James Bible is hard to read. You stand in your pulpit and tell your people, I've heard you do it, that the King James Bible is an unreliable translation. Well, I got news for you. You're an unreliable preacher. I've heard him say, now, actually, the NIV today, the greatest new translation, is actually closer to the original than anything else, certainly the King James Bible. Up your nose with a rubber hose. (laughs) The last part of verse 10 says, He himself shall fall into his own pit, but the upright shall have good things in possession. You know what those good things in possessions are, dear people? They're your millennial inheritances and your rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, you want to hear something else? Want another? Let's just put some more heresy out. What do you say, huh? Today is heresy two for one. For sale. We'll throw in an extra one. It's hard for some people to grasp truth, the reality of truth. We have come so far from the Bible. Most of our lives are so out of touch with the real spiritual relationship with God. We live in a fuzzy little world of cute little cubicles and nice little puppy dogs and kitty cats, and we never really get into combat and understand the smell and the sting of battle, of fighting something for the Lord. We wouldn't take a stand against anything or anybody. So it's hard for us to get up and say and understand that in the world that we live in today, and the and majority of Christianity, and I'll say 99.9% of them probably, let me just say this to you. If in your pulpit, if in your life, if in your hand today, if you're listening to me on this tape, and I hope you are, if you're using any other Bible that a King James 1611 authorized version, I've already showed you the seven things you will lost, you will lose everything at the millennium and the judgment seat of Christ because it's based on his truth, not your good works. It's based on his truth, not what you thought about it. It's based on his truth, not the message. It's based on his truth, not the translation. It's based on his truth. He gave you the clear word of God just the way he wanted you to have it. And in that are all the blessings and praise that God has for you. Outside of that, you got nothing. And that's tough today. Every Sunday, you stand in your pulpit and continually to lead God's people astray. 
you lead them away from the truth and you lead them into a dark pit. And the Bible clearly states in Matthew 15, 14, if the blind lead the blind, they both fall into the ditch. You take and spend your whole life in ministry taking a stand against God's holy, perfect, inspired Word of God. And you, you jelly-livered, spineless Christian, you try to bridge the gap between both. Oh, they're really nice people. They're real. If you don't have the book, you got the devil's book. It's just that simple. So now what you're telling me is that uh, God's doing it all through the devil's book. Okay, I got you. And you got all history of 400 years standing and crying out against that, showing you for 400 years the only book that God used to bathe this world in the light of his salvation was a King James 1611 authorized version. And you don't even care about it. You chose the devil's Bible which started out of the devil's church. See Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And was put together by unsaved men who cared nothing about the pure word of God. You guys, it, its source was Sidiatics and Vaticanus, both out of the Roman Catholic Church. The men who put it together was Westcott and Hort, both Roman Catholic, dead and screaming their lungs out in hell this morning. The guy that found it was Tischendorf, who could care less about God's word than anybody on the planet. It was Origen, who you know what he did? Took the pure word of God and didn't like it and changed it in 60,000 places that show up in your NIV or any other translation you want to take. It was Clement of Alexandria. It was Pantanus. It was the Lockman Foundation. It was Billy Graham. It was Rick Warren. It was the Christian celebrities out there that you just love. And every day they stand in their pulpit and they turn their people astray. And you're okay with that. God help you. And you are used by the most corrupt system in Christianity or the world since the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes. They hated any authority higher in their education. Mark chapter 1, verse 22. Read it. And you lead God's people astray. Verse 11 says, The rich man is wise in his own conceit. Boy, that's true. But the poor that hath understanding searcheth him out. Oh, bet you bet he does. Like a bird dog on a cover of quail. You kidding me? That book and its truth will cut you like a laser beam. It'll gut you like a deer. It will expose you of who you really are. Its doctrines will lay you out. That's why you'll never get into the Bible with anybody. That's why you'll never talk about it. You just like to tiptoe around and talk about the niceties of things because if you've ever gotten a book, it would lay you like a filleted fish. It will mark you as a man who rejects real truth and the apostate that you really are. And it will cut you up and leave you bloody, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, because it's a sword. And you're headed for the same pit that you've tried to lead your people into. Never forget the warning in the Bible in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 13. Whoso despises the word shall be destroyed but he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded. And let me just say this to you so we're clear. Whoso despises the word, somebody says, oh, that's not me. I love the Bible. No, it is you. If you don't put those furnishings in your life and you're not standing your stand in these last days, it's absolutely you. Here, boop, just bops your bubble. We like to live in a world that doesn't exist. 
I find people all the time, I say, hey, how are you doing with the Lord? Well, you know, Bob, I'm not really out of fellowship with God, but I'm not really in fellowship with God. Like there's a twilight zone that you can go in as a Christian. Let me tell you something to you. You're either right with God this morning. You either got your heart right before you got here today. You're either standing on the promises of God and in complete with fellowship with Him, or you're out there and your life is as black as the sides of the bottomless pit. There is no in between. He that either loves me or you hate me. He that is not with me is against me. You don't find this twilight zone. But boy, we like to make one. Here I am. The twilight zone of Christianity. Oh, let's just get along with everybody. Let's just sing songs. Let's just uplift Jesus. Let's don't go hear that radical guy who says all those mean, nasty things. Why, it upsets me. I, I want to talk about the love of God. I want to talk about the, the, the beauty of God and all the things that, that God is. I, I don't want to have these negative thoughts in my brain. I don't want to be depressed because somebody may say that my prayer is an abomination and, and you know, and, and I knew nothing about that tabernacle and that strange fire. And at the judgment seat of Christ, you will not be held accountable for what you know or what you didn't know. You will be held accountable for what you could have found out, but you chose not to. You want to talk about the niceties of Christ, not for me. If your prayer starts at the nicety of Christ, you're in trouble. I want not the nicety of Christ in my life. I want to see him hanging on that beaten cross for me. I want to hear him cry out to his father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I want to know on that cross when he cried out, Father, forgive them, they know what what they do. He wasn't just talking about Israel. I believe he had my name on his lips. Whited sepulcher. Whoso despises the word shall be destroyed, but he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded. My advice to you is to find yourself in a hellhole like that of a church. It's to get out today, now, yesterday. Quit being part of a satanic work that has one goal, and that's to overthrow the word of God and lead their people astray. Because the longer you stay there and support it, you're part of it. Why, in Kansas City, if you drive an automobile and you got two gangsters in the back and they kill somebody and you're just driving the car, or you're, there, you're with them when they do it, when they finally catch them, they charge you with murder too as an accessory. You know what? You know what you are in those churches? You're an accessory. And you're a coward. Walk up to that pastor, call him on the carpet, nail him, let him have it. Where's the steel in your backbone to take a stand for after what God did for you? Let me ask you a question. If he wimped out on the cross as much as you do for him in life, where would we be? Amen. I don't know, a Catholic church one time, and they me around there with a bunch of people, and a goofy monk was showing us around, or the father, whoever he was, an admiral, I don't know, maybe he was a second lieutenant. And he was, he was over there, and there's this big stained glass window. And I was pretty upset at this time because all the stuff that was going on. And there was a picture of Jesus with two men standing on each side. And I asked the old boy, I said, what is that? And he said, well, that's a picture of Jesus at the crucifixion. And he says, uh, I said, oh, I said, well, who are the two guys? And he says, well, the guy on the right is Cardinal Spellman, and the guy on the left is Pope John the Thirteenth. 
I said, hmm, that makes sense. I said, you know what, pal? I always knew Jesus was crucified between two thieves. I just never knew their names. <laughs> You're so gutless. You're afraid to take a stand. The stone that won't be my friend anymore. Watch, watch Tombstone. Right about quarter into it, somewhere in there. Doc Holliday. I, 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 I just don't know what I'll do if you won't be my friend. <laughs> it's tough to get to the judgment seat of Christ and of saying you were afraid to talk about and take a stand of people you thought were your friends when you had one that died on that cross and was a friend to stick it closer than a brother. Amen. Told you it's going to be rough today. Hey, it happened in Paul's day. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17 says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. It was going on in his day. Alexandria, Egypt was the hotbed of knowledge, and they were taking the manuscripts that, that were given to the apostles, and Origen, and Pantanus, and Clement of Alexander were destroying them. And they all come out through the Roman Catholic Church, or the city as the Vaticanus, as your NIV, your RSV, and every new translation you think is better than God's absolute perfect word but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the Spirit of God, speak we in Christ. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, we talked about it Thursday night. God's given us a more sure word of prophecy. It's the book that you have. And God's holy word, without it, no power in your preaching. No real love for God, because the love for God has to go back to what God's love really is defined in the Bible. No inheritance, no worship, no working of God in you, no furnishings for God to work in you, no prayer life. Voila, the body of Christ in the 21st century. God's people. as wishy-washy and milk toast as you ever want to see in your life. Couldn't take a stand for anything. Always just go with the flow. And I'm telling you, that is, the, that is the dilemma of Christianity. But as I've said many, many times, God always got his remnant, doesn't he? He always got the men and the women who will take their stand no matter what. Other Christians look at them and you say, oh, they're such mean-spirited people. Oh, they just don't have the love of Christ. Lady, you don't even know what the love of Christ is. And if I put an open Bible in front of you and a gun to your head and said, show it to me in, in an hour, your brains will be on the wall in 61 seconds. You don't even know. You just spew out all the garbage that you think is what the Word of God is. But push comes to shove, you'll never get in a place with anybody with an open Bible. Well, we'll hold up there. Let me say this to you.